Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can, you may already be there, but you can find 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're closing in on the final few sermons of our series through 1 and 2 Thessalonians, titled Living, Waiting, and Enduring for Jesus. We'll just go ahead and read verses 1 through 4 again, just to gear our minds towards where we're going to be at this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you and the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So just a reminder here about the context in which Paul is writing. Remember, uh, way at the beginning of this series, we talked about how God providentially led Paul and his ministry team to Thessalonica. If you remember, there was a, there was a lot of closed doors along the way of where Paul wanted to take the gospel... But eventually Paul gets this vision from a man that calls him over to Macedonia, and so he goes to Philippi, uh, and then eventually ends up in Thessalonica. This is Acts chapter 16. When he gets to Thessalonica, uh, he, he does what he normally does. He goes to the synagogue, begins preaching the gospel. People are saved, and most likely he's only there for a couple months or so before being run out of town. Uh, by those who are enemies of the gospel. As a matter of fact, the next town he goes to, those same people in Thessalonica that, that ran him out of town there, run him out of town again. And so he ends up in Corinth. And from Corinth, Paul writes the first letter to the Thessalonians, and most likely this letter as well. There's probably a couple months uh, in between the first and second letter, uh, maybe a little bit more than that. We don't know for sure. But Remember, the, the first letter, Paul addressed a number of different issues. I mean, he had almost every major doctrine uh, that we want to look at as, as, as the church, and a lot of different things. But if you, if you notice when we read through 2 Thessalonians during the pastoral prayer time, Paul is, is almost exclusively talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so this, the, the letter of 2 Thessalonians isn't a repeat of what went on in 1 Thessalonians. It's actually a little bit more of a, of a dive deeper into what Paul had already written about. There are apparently some extreme and erring ideas concerning the Lord's return. And Paul needed to correct what exactly the return of the Lord Jesus was going to look like. So Paul writes this letter. And pretty much all of 2 Thessalonians is deeply eschatological or, or concerning the end times. As we talk about our four verses this morning as, as we look at Paul's greeting and thanksgiving to this church, it's very similar to what we saw in 1 Thessalonians. But I'm sure many of you are familiar, maybe you've played a word association game. Now, a word association game is the, the spontaneous production of, of a word to, uh, in response to another word. And so, if you've played uh, any sort of game, you, you're given a word, uh, basketball. And then you, and you just spontaneously off the bat, you start listing off all these other words that come to mind when you think of the word basketball. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here. 
Paul is, uh, if, if, you were to, if you were to go back in time and you were to ask Paul, hey, Paul, what comes to mind when I say Thessalonica? Or when I, when I say the, the, the church at Thessalonica? These, this, these four verses really kind of tell us what comes to mind, this, the spontaneous sort of response. Verses 1 to 4 refer to, and, and as we listen to these words, and if Paul were to, were to, were to speak verses 1 to 4 to us, we would probably describe this church, this local church, as a healthy church. Just the ways he talks about this church, the words that he uses. Faith is growing. Uh, love is increasing. We boast about them in all the churches. They, they're steadfast. Their faith in all the persecutions and affliction that they're enduring. I mean, we would look at this church and we say, this is a healthy church. A healthy church is a church that prioritizes what God prioritizes. A healthy church holds as most important only those things that are important to God. Now, Thessalonica, they didn't have lots of money. They didn't have a famous pastor They didn't have cutting-edge technology. They didn't have a spectacular building. They didn't have multiple forms of of entertainment. And they weren't concerned about large numbers, large budgets, large personalities, large productions, or large buildings. They were content prioritizing what God wanted to prioritize, his glory, his gospel. And this is something that Paul would write to the Corinthians later in 1 Corinthians 15. You know the verses, don't you, where Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The healthy church prioritizes the gospel over celebrity preachers, money, everything else. And so, with Paul's introduction to the, now the second letter of the Thessalon- to the Thessalonians, we see, at least in part, a definition of what a healthy church looks like. And so, uh, Paul does this pri- by uh, providing three attributes. So let's walk through those. Three things, three attributes of a healthy church. Number one, a healthy church is dependent on God's grace. This is the way he, we talked last week about God's grace, and this is the way he's starting The first two verses there, Paul emphasizes God's grace. He says this grace comes from, this grace and peace come from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. They're uh, they're the source of grace and peace, and they are Lord Jesus and God, they're equals. And so Paul certainly understood that in, in order for a church to be healthy, it had to be dependent on God's grace. Paul knew that God's grace had appeared to them and saved them. And now Paul is kind of praying and he's wishing uh, upon them that God's grace would continue to empower them to live the Christian life. Now what is God's grace? Well, defined, grace is God's undeserved favor towards sinners who deserve hell. God's grace is God's undeserved favor towards sinners who deserve hell. And this grace is revealed in God sending his son Jesus to die on the cross. And this grace is revealed to those who place their faith in the crucified and risen Savior. But grace isn't just something that saves us at one point in time. Grace is also something that empowers us to 
live the Christian life and to walk in the Holy Spirit. So that every spiritual blessing we have comes from God's grace. So this is a church that is dependent on God's grace. Now a church that is dependent on anything else other than God's grace will be a weak and unhealthy church. Paul knew that they had received, again, God's grace in saving them, but he wanted them to rest in the confidence that God was going to continue to give them grace in their daily operations. They were going to receive daily grace from God as they faced their trials and persecutions. So let's be dependent on God's grace. Now, I want to point out just a couple, a couple uh, aspects of, of God's grace here. Uh, we see God's grace in a number of different ways in the first two verses. Now, what we're going to talk about, the very existence of these things is an act of God's grace, but these are also things in which God uses to, as means of his grace to us. Here's, here's the first one. Look at the, the grace of godly mentors. The first three names, Paul and we'll, uh, Silas would be perhaps who you're familiar as. The Silvanus is, the, uh, Silvanus is the, the Roman name for Silas. And Timothy. So the grace of godly mentors, that this church had godly men to mentor them through life. Faithful servants of the Lord. Paul, of course, is the one we know the most about. He carried the gospel to the Gentiles after his conversion. Silas went with Paul. Uh, You remember that time in Acts where Paul and Barnabas split ways because there was a pretty sharp disagreement between the two of them. So Silas goes with him. Silas was known as a prophet among the churches. He was faithful in carrying out the ministry. He preached the gospel faithfully. Timothy would end up being like a son in the faith for the Apostle Paul and one of his most trusted assets to the ministry and associates. So the the grace of godly mentors. Paul could trust these guys and the church could trust them to help them spiritually through life. And if you are someone who has that sort of person in your life, that is, that is an act of God's grace. And it's also a way in which God gives you his grace to empower you to walk in faithfulness. And if you don't have anyone in your life that you would consider a godly mentor, then, then find, someone, find someone who has the Christian life more figured out than you do. And start asking them questions about the Christian life. Start take, I mean, have them take you, you know, you go and volunteer them to put it on their dime. Take them to lunch or coffee and, and start listening to them. But there's not only the grace of godly mentors, but there's the grace of the local church in this passage to the church of the Thessalonians. The local church is a grace of God and a way in which God, the uh, means of grace as we fellowship together and listen to the preaching of the word Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica. Now think about what the church is and think about why this is such a grace. The church is a local assembly of followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, isn't it great to meet together with other followers of Jesus Christ? And by definition, the members of the church are a body of people who have experienced the saving grace of God and are walking in its daily empowerment, its changing power. So just even the church is nothing without God's grace. We are nothing without God's grace. By grace comes the forgiveness of sins and the power to do good works. And so our church must be founded upon grace. 
dependent on God's grace. And this grace of God affects everything we believe about conversion, salvation, sanctification, the nature of man, the eternal destiny of every human soul, and so many other doctrines. Now think about our world. We live in a pretty graceless world. A world operating not just in how they show grace to others or the lack thereof, but a world that operates totally independent from God's grace. And perhaps that describes some of you Christians as well. But we live in a culture, it's one of the most, we live, I mean, especially in the American culture, we live in one of the most entitled societies ever to exist. And entitled individuals don't operate by their dependence on God's grace because entitled individuals don't think they, they need grace. At least not God's grace. Every commercial, every movie, every song, every message we receive from the culture talks about what we deserve and making sure we do whatever is best for us. Never a message that we need to to depend on God's grace. And many Christians follow that same pattern in their life. They do enough religious things or they pattern their life in such a way that if they do enough religious things, they can make demands of God. Or even be angry at them if God doesn't give them what they want or they don't get their their way. Many Christians really believe, at least functionally, that God doesn't expect them to depend on his grace every single day. Now there are a few Christians who would say that. There are a few Christians who would stand up before you and say, I don't think I need God's grace. But functionally, where the rubber hits the road, many Christians live their lives as if they, they don't need God's grace and they don't need to operate on God's grace, but they can, they can do it on their own. They can make demands and all these things from other people, and they can make demands of God. They don't need God's grace, and they've, they've got it all together just to make it through life in self-reliance and entitlement. So many Christians live not by resting their reliance on God, but placing requirements on God. And here, again, is something that Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. What does God say to Paul in his affliction? But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let me just, are you content? Are you content being a weak parent resting on the sufficient grace of God? Are you content being a weak man or woman resting on the sufficient grace of God? Or are you not content with that? You've got to be a self-made man, a self-made woman, a self-made parent, a self-made spouse, a self-made coworker, a self-made Christian. And you can't say like Paul says, I'm content being weak, resting on the sufficient grace of God. You say, no, I, I, will, I will figure out how to get this strength and do it on my own. Listen, in case you haven't figured it out by now, and for some of us, myself included, it takes a while to figure it out, but this life will be too much to handle without God's grace. Let me illustrate it this way. Just the other day, uh, me and the family were in Ankeny. I was invited to preach at Faith Baptist Bible College, their, their morning chapel on Wednesday. And so we went the day before 
to, to just uh, to make sure that we were early enough, and we went the night before to take out some, some college students we knew uh, that go to the, the college there. We took them out to dinner. We went to Jethro's Barbecue. And during uh, the Jeth- uh, we were sitting there eating dinner at Jethro's Barbecue, and, and, and uh, all of a sudden, one of the, the, the shift managers or something walks out with a big handheld megaphone, and she announces to the whole restaurant that there was somebody in there that was getting ready to attempt the Emmenecker Challenge. Now, in case you don't know what the Emmenecker Challenge is, the Emmenecker Challenge is where you have 15 minutes to eat a four-pound sandwich consisting of, and I hope this doesn't make you hungry and you just check out the rest of the morning, but I'm willing to give it a shot here. Uh, It's a four-pound sandwich consisting of a cheddar cheeseburger, bacon, brisket, fried cheese, buffalo chicken tenders, and a pork tenderloin smothered in white cheddar cheese sauce and topped off with a a spicy pickle and a pound and a half of waffle fries. And he had 15 minutes in, and to, to eat this entire thing. Now, if you were to, I mean, just reading that, I mean, most people fail. And looking at this guy, you know, he didn't look like a guy who would be able to do it. And sure enough, 15 minutes goes by and the timer goes off and, and, and the, the lady gets back on the megaphone after the alarm goes off and she goes, that is the sound of failure. It was too much. And listen, if you've ceased to be dependent on God's grace in your marriage, in your relationships, in your singleness, in your, in your schoolwork, at your jobs, in your parenting, if you've ceased to be dependent on God's grace and you're despairing in your heart, that graceless despair could be for some the sound of failure not that you're a failure but that you're trusting in something that is failing you you're trusting in your own efforts you're trusting in your own strength you're trusting in your own wisdom and it's failing you now yes we we despair even as christians who are dependent on god's grace so i'm not saying if you despair you're a failure that's not what i'm saying what i'm saying is that if you are a parent, a spouse, a man, a woman, a follower of Jesus, and you've ceased to depend on God's grace, and you are experiencing the graceless despair, that could for you be the sound, not that you're a failure, or that God thinks you're a failure, but that whatever you're trusting in is failing you. And that you're trying to rely on your own flesh to accomplish what God wants to accomplish through his grace. Depend on his grace. The healthy church, the healthy Christian, depends on God's grace. Number two, the healthy church. The healthy church grows in faith and increases in love. The healthy church grows in faith, increases in love. Now Paul says we ought always to give thanks to you. It's like he has this debt to give thanks to God because of everything that God is doing in the lives of the Thessalonians. And, you know, don't look at this, we ought to, like we have to, as if it's some sort of, you know, reluctant thing that Paul is doing. I think it's, it's both a duty to him and a delight. that He gets to give thanks to God for the way he sees God working in this church's life and in their midst. But they were experiencing growth. 
And actually, it, the word growth, it often refers to uh, like a child growing or a plant growing. But here, in the original language, the prefix hyper is used. And it's the only time in the New Testament this word is used. At least with the, the prefix hyper. I mean, it's, 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 Paul is saying they were experiencing hyper growth. Uh, their faith was on super growth. It was growing beyond expectation. And this, again, is because, as we just talked about, it was because of God's grace. And their faith was growing, this super growth. Now, how should we understand growing faith? What is growing faith? Well, growing faith is faith. Faith is confidence in God. Faith is confidence in the gospel. Growing faith is when we take that confidence in God, we take that confidence in his promises, we take that confidence in the, in the gospel, and we apply it to everyday trials, tribulations, temptations. So to put it another way, growing faith is confidence in God and his gospel that is demonstrated in trials. Okay, Growing faith is confidence in God and the gospel that plays out, applies itself in day-to-day trials. Here's what this church was doing. This church was appropriating the gospel to daily life. Their faith in the gospel continued to find fresh ways of application and how they interacted with each other, how they interacted with trials and temptations and everything that was going on. And so if you're a Christian, and of course us as a church, but the church is made up of people, we, we need to continue to find ways in which the gospel can be appropriated in our day-to-day lives. So, so the whole spectrum of whatever situation we find ourselves in, relationships, uh, workplace or not, we find fresh ways of application So let's just ask, I mean, does the gospel do that? Does the gospel, are you able to take the gospel and find ways of application in the trials you face as a parent, as a student, as a retiree, as a single person, as a child, as a grown-up? Because here's really what we need to understand about growing faith. When dependence on the gospel leads to its disbursement in trials, then our faith will grow. When dependence on the gospel leads to its disbursement in trials, then our faith will grow. Gospel dependence leads to gospel disbursement, leads to faith development. So you, just by simply going through trials doesn't mean your, your faith is growing. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're depending on the gospel, you've got to take that gospel and you've got to apply it to those hard times as a parent. To those hard times struggling with health as we grow older. Now we have a lot of plants in our house. And we have real plants uh, with real roots that are in real soil that really grow because they get real sunlight and real water, and real nutrients from the soil. But then, uh, aside from all the, the real plants we have in our house, we have, we have one fake tree thing. It stands about this high or so. And I say tree thing because it was made from a branch that had fallen down in our backyard, and, and uh, so it's just a branch, and then we, we put artificial uh, olive branches kind of off to the side. It's, it's a really cool-looking thing, but, it, but it's fake. And here's the thing. This 
fake tree thing, if, uh, as, as I'm sure my wife is loving me call it, uh, this fake tree thing, isn't, it's not in soil, and it has no roots. Instead, what, what it's in is, is in this large glass bowl that was filled with cement. And we stuck it in there, and when the cement dried, it stands upright, but it has no life. Now, when we think of a growing faith, in order for a plant to grow, in order for a plant to be real, it's got to have real roots in real soil, getting real nutrients. Now, your faith will not grow if it is not rooted in the gospel where there is life. Many Christians are cemented in traditions, in religious activity. They're cemented in self-effort. They're cemented in self-righteousness. They're cemented in self-absorption and self-worship. And on and on it goes. But they don't experience any growth because they have little to no confidence in the gospel or in God. So we have to ask ourselves, is my faith cemented in some other thing or is it rooted in the gospel? And here's the scary thing about this, because you, one is you can't be a Christian if you don't have your faith rooted in the gospel. You have to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You have to believe that he died for you and rose again. And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, then you don't have any real gospel roots. But here's the danger on the other side, and this is sometimes it can even be hard to distinguish. Because even as a Christian, you can... If I can put it this way, maybe you can't lose your salvation, but you can begin to build your life on things that aren't going to give you power to obey God. And your life can become about, again, like those traditions or the religious things or yourself or self-worship. And it's no longer about the gospel. But in order to experience growth, we have to be rooted in the gospel. Life and growth come from the gospel. And so is that the case in your life? Or are you stuck? Are you cemented? Are you being held upright, but there's not much life? Now trials, uh, as we get into verse 4, we understand that trials is, are, is kind of the place where we find out whether or not there's life and figure out what our faith is really in. Trials are where we grow. Take it to heart now that trials are where our faith is revealed and where our faith grows. Warren Wiersbe says, an, e- an easy life can lead to a shallow faith. And again, the simple presence of trials doesn't mean you're growing in your faith. Because you could be facing a trial, but you're not appropriating the gospel. You can be facing a trial in your marriage, in your parenting, at school, at work, but not be appropriating the gospel into that situation. And so your faith isn't growing because you're not seeking fresh ways to understand and know God and know the gospel and to rely on his grace. You might be relying on yourself, or you might be relying on some other tradition or religion or whatever it might be, and you're not growing. So facing trials doesn't mean your faith will grow in and of itself, but it is virtually impossible for your faith to grow without trials. And this is, uh, uh, Peter wrote about this, and it's something to consider along those very lines, when Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, where he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A growing faith. Not just a growing faith, but an increasing love. As we saw here, the healthy church grows in faith, it increases in love. Love is showing the gospel to others. Love is where the gospel flows from us to others. It's not a feeling towards others, it's showing God's grace to others. And they were suffering, and Paul is saying that in the midst of their suffering, they didn't become self-focused, but they continued to show love to others. And in those sufferings, we're often tempted to look inward, to focus on self, but when we depend on God's grace, and we have faith in God and faith in the gospel, and that faith in God and faith in the gospel deepens as we go through suffering, then we will want to show love to others even when we're suffering. Paul was filled with joy because this was evident in the church, which leads us to the third attribute of a healthy church. A healthy church, number one, depends on God's grace. Two, it grows in faith and increases in love. And number three, a healthy church exemplifies faithful endurance. I use the word exemplifies because Paul actually says, they, where Paul says in verse 4, he says, we boast about you in the churches of God. He says, we ourselves boast about you. What, a, what an encouragement this must have been for the church at Thessalonica. To have been a young church, they're suffering all sorts of persecution, they don't got it all together, and yet Paul says, we boast about you to everybody. Paul has given some pretty high praise to this church. And surely being aware of their own frailties, they would have felt completely unworthy for Paul to, to esteem them this way or to, to hold them up in this way. But Paul is, is writing this way to them. Again, he's about to correct some things that are wrong in the church. But before that, he's, he's encouraging them. That's what God uses. God uses other people so many times to strengthen our faith and to affirm our growth in God. And this is why, this is why encouragement is so important. That's why it's so important not just to receive encouragement, but to give encouragement. Because that is the very thing that God often uses to even, to even solidify the faith of someone even more. To reorient them to trust the gospel. Now Paul was never afraid to call sin, sin. He was never afraid to correct erring doctrine. And he was never afraid to tell Christians that they need to kill sin and walk in holiness and walk in accordance with the Spirit. But he didn't, he didn't do this by using the law as some hammer. Because you got a hammer, everything turns into a nail. And Paul wasn't going around with the law, just, just, just pounding law. Instead, he did it by preaching and teaching the gospel. Everything comes from the gospel in this. Everything builds off our dependence on the gospel. And so when he saw God's grace active in the church, overflowing in their lives, he commended the church and he strengthened their faith. But not only did he encourage them, Paul himself was encouraged by it. And so this is, this is a similar attitude to what Paul told uh, the, when he wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He was often encouraged by other people's faith. He, he told he tells the, the Christians, he says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be, notice this, mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. 
Paul didn't think, man, I got this all together, I'm good to go. When Paul saw God working in someone's life, it, was, it encouraged him. And he was eager to, to go with those Roman Christians because he wanted to be mutually encouraged by their faith. And he wanted to encourage theirs as well. That's a healthy church. That's a healthy church. That's a church that can be an example. Paul found encouragement in the people's faith. Do you find encouragement when you see others walk in the spirit? Or are you indifferent to that sort of thing? Are you jealous even maybe? This church was persevering. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches for your steadfastness, your perseverance. They face persecution, that is hostile treatment at the hands of the enemies of the gospel. And they were unwilling to allow the enemies of the gospel to move them away from depending on the gospel. They were unwilling to allow the hostile response of others to the gospel move them away from depending on the gospel. And this is what happens to so many. Jesus even says this is what happens to so many. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, when the parable of the, of the sower. He talks about the, the seed that was sown on the rocky ground. And he says, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet there's no root. But he endures for a while. But then, notice these words, tribulation, persecution, arises on the account of the word and they immediately fall away. And this church was facing trials. They were facing tribulation and persecution. They were facing all the pains and pressures of life, yet they persevered and they endured. They were able to, to bear up underneath it. They remained faithful to the gospel during the pains, the persecutions, the pressures of life. That's endurance. The trials didn't shake them away from the gospel. It rooted them more deeply in the gospel. And so they faced these trials. And they applied the gospel to it. And here's a question. If you're going through a trial or suffering, here's, here's a question you should ask. No matter what the trial is, no matter what the suffering is, here's the question. What does it look like to walk with faith in Christ as I endure fill in the blank? What does it look like to walk with faith in Christ as I endure fill in the blank? So many times we try to escape our suffering and yes, there are times when by faith and for safety we need to walk away or escape suffering. That's absolutely true. But the question is always, what does faithfulness look like in my current situation? How does the gospel and God's grace empower me to obey and to walk faithfully? They were the pattern to follow. Our suffering, he says, uh, he says, we boast about you in all the churches because your steadfastness, your faith, and all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. This was the church to follow. The church, that's an example. And our suffering doesn't just allow us to grow, but it's also meant to be an example to others. And not just our suffering, but how we trust in God and the gospel in our suffering. So again, another, uh, another uh, verse to the Corinthians that Paul wrote. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Why does God comfort you in your affliction? Well, one reason is that you may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I find it interesting that he says comfort, uh, we are comforted in our affliction so that we can comfort those in any affliction. Because here's the thing. 
If you face any sort of affliction and you walk faithfully with Christ and, and you struggle, yes. Maybe you doubt, yes. Maybe even despair, but you're depending on grace, through, God's grace through it all. You're receiving God's comfort through it all. It doesn't matter necessarily what other people are suffering. It, may not, it doesn't have to be the exact same suffering. So he's not saying, you know, those with knee injuries can only suffer those with knee injuries. And those with cancer can only suffer those or uh, encourage and comfort those with cancer. Although there certainly is a certain bond and experience between the two, people might be able to understand cancer better, having gone through cancer. But it's still this, this general universal thing that those who receive comfort from God in their affliction are able to speak to those who are being afflicted. No two situations and sufferings will ever be alike, but that doesn't mean we can't share how God has comforted us. So if you've received comfort from God in affliction, then you're kind of obligated. Doesn't this verse obligate us? In ways that are within the appropriate time and context to share that comfort with others. So as we look at these three, these three attributes of a healthy church, again, a church is made up of people. A church is made up of its members. It's a body. So my question to you is, are you a healthy Christian? Are you dependent on God's grace? Are you growing in faith and increasing in love? Are you someone who could exemplify faithful endurance with all that endurance entails when we're suffering? The hurt, the heartache, the anguish, the despair, the doubts, but all the while being faithful to the Lord Jesus and always depending on his grace and our weaknesses. See, if all the parts of this body, if all the parts of Calvary Baptist Church are plagued with infection, then the whole body is going to be sick. If there's only a select few that are depending on God's grace, this body is going to be sick. But if the body as a whole can depend on God's grace and then help those who are struggling to depend on God's grace, we'd be a healthy church. We can help each other grow up like Ephesians 4 talks about. None of us will ever be perfect The church at Thessalonica certainly wasn't. But what word association would go with you? When it comes to your spiritual life, when it comes to whether or not you depend on the gospel, your faith is growing, whether or not you exemplify that faithful endurance in hardships, what word association would come with your name? Christian, depend on God's grace. Grow in faith and increase in love. Endure suffering as an example to others. And if you don't know Jesus and you're depending maybe on yourself to get to heaven or earn God's forgiveness, that's, that's not it. God gave his son Jesus to this world to die on the cross and rise from the dead. Anyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. And I encourage you, if you're not depending on God's grace for salvation, that today be the day of salvation. Trust him as your savior. Believe that he died for you and rose again. And the promise is all your sins will be forgiven. And then you can live daily dependent on that same grace as you go through all the trials and afflictions. And yes, maybe even some persecutions as you go through life. Let's pray. Our Lord God, help us to be a healthy church. Lord, continue to help us depend more and more on your grace. Lord, help us to grow in faith, increase in love, and then Lord, may we exemplify faithful endurance and suffering and affliction and persecution. In Jesus' name, amen.